Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Bernstein Insights, where we cover trends in the economy and markets and asset allocation for long-term investors. I'm particularly excited about this podcast today because we're talking about disruption in the auto industry. As many of you know, the auto industry has been around for 130 or so years, but probably over the next five to 10, there's going to be a complete transformation of that industry that's going to impact how we all get around. And so I've asked a close colleague of mine and and fellow senior portfolio manager, Moira McLaughlin, to join me. Moira's done a lot of work on this area and is here to share some of her insights. So Moira, welcome to the show. Thank you. So Moira, I mentioned this transformation that's going to be occurring in autos. Give us at a high level, as you see it, what are the most impactful changes that are going to be occurring? Well, there are really three disruptive forces. The first is electrification, then self-driving technology, something we've been hearing an awful lot about. And then the final one is on-demand mobility or ride-sharing. And of course, these three forces are somewhat interrelated. So let's take each of these in turn. And you are correct. They are interrelated to one another. So let's flesh that out when we get there. Let's take the first one, electrification or electric cars. What are the benefits relative to what we have today? So first and foremost, electric vehicles are much cleaner than gas-powered cars. Carbon emissions come really from two places, power generation and transportation. Um, Existing electric vehicles produce over 50% less carbon emissions than traditional internal combustion engine cars, and that that benefit is likely to improve substantially going forward as electric vehicles become more efficient and power generation becomes greener meaning electric cars will become even greener over time? Indeed. Absolutely. I mean, there's been, I'm assuming, the technology around to drive electrification of cars for some time. Why is it uh, only in the last, uh, I don't know, three, five years that it's become more of an issue? When you think about the adoption, really, of any technology, you can sort of think about quality, convenience, and price, right? And for some people... The benefit, and if we can think about this in terms of electric vehicles being, quote, higher quality, for some people, the benefit of energy efficiency and lower environmental impact is enough, right? And that offsets um, lower convenience and the higher price that comes with purchasing electric vehicles. What we are seeing, however, is some significant improvements both on the cost front, so costs coming down, and improvements in terms of convenience. And that's one of the things that we think is likely to sort of push towards a tipping point in terms of electric vehicle adoption. So to just kind of drill down on that a little bit further, uh, a big part of the cost of electric vehicles is batteries, right? And But what we have seen is in terms of the batteries, it's the cost of the battery and certainly the energy density, which sort of links in to the convenience piece. We've seen costs of batteries coming down dramatically. We're seeing a little bit sort of like the Moore's Law effect um, that we've seen in semiconductors. Costs coming down dramatically while power, in this case energy density, has improved substantially. And, of course, the improvements in energy density means that a car can now go further, an electric vehicle can go further on a single charge than it could have historically. And that's sort of closing the convenience gap, if you will, uh, closing the gap in terms of range for how far 
you can go on a single charge for an electric vehicle versus a gas-powered car. Currently, electric vehicles in the U.S. represent less than 1% of annual sales, but it is growing quite quickly. Last year, those sales increased by 40% in the U.S., and if that continued every year for the next six years, electric vehicles would still only make up 10% of total vehicle sales in the U.S., but the pace of growth is certainly quite high, and the pace of growth in other countries dramatically outstrips the growth that we're seeing here. And Moira, I, I know government subsidies have often been a big part of the incentive to get uh, greater adoption of electric vehicles. Where does that stand today? Well, subsidies and incentives can be really quite important. Electric vehicles are cheaper to run than gas-powered cars, but they come with a higher price tag, right, despite Tesla's efforts to try and address that issue. So government incentives to bring that initial cost down are pretty critical. And we are seeing some major differences in government policies and priorities, and that has contributed to some of these differences in adoption rates between countries. So Norway, for example, electric vehicles reached over 40% of total vehicle sales last year, compared to that 1% that I mentioned uh, here in the U.S. And that adoption rate, maybe it's a social consciousness that's playing in there. I'm sure it is to some extent. But the fact that Um, There's an exemption of the 25% VAT for buyers of electric vehicles. That absolutely is driving that adoption higher. China is targeting 2 million electric and plug-in vehicles per year by 2020, um, and they're using a combination of subsidies and production quotas for car makers to really get there. Talked about Britain and, and France. They've announced that sales of gas-powered only cars will be banned by 2040, and in the interim, they are offering some subsidies. So with lofty goals, you often have to rely upon government to facilitate the adoption there. So I think that's uh, it's an important piece of the equation. A little bit of a carrot and a stick, right? Yeah. So maybe give us a sense for what stands in the way of broader adoption across the globe. Absolutely. So the average range of a gas-powered car is about 250 to 300 miles per tank of gas versus only about 100 miles for an electric vehicle. You've probably heard references to range anxiety that electric vehicle drivers have, and that's one, how often do you need to top up? But then absolutely to your point, there's no commercial charging stations for electric vehicles. Tesla, of course, has got some charging sort of touchdown stations, if you will, around, but there's no broad commercial network akin to gas stations. And that is definitely, definitely right up there in terms of emergence challenges for this technology. So I just want to make sure I got this correctly. So when people charge their electric vehicle, they're charging it at their home because they have the contraption in their garage. There isn't anything out there where you could drive around as you would a gas station? There is no network of commercial charging stations. You may have seen in your parking garage at work. Uh, We certainly have one here. There are a couple of places where you can plug your car in. uh, And Tesla has a few of them around. But no, there's no broad network. And that's that's the range anxiety, right? You can't go that far. And also, when you need a jolt, you don't know if you're going to be able to get it. Right, right. Terrifying. (laughs) So let's move on to your second transformation, which is occurring in the automobiles industry, which is self-driving vehicles. 
bring us up to speed on on self-driving vehicles. I know many of us have read articles about it over the last couple of years, but what's the latest? Well, autonomous vehicles are not really ready to operate without human supervision yet. But recent progress in computer vision and machine learning have really contributed to some pretty dramatic improvements on a number of different fronts. There are currently dozens of autonomous vehicle or self-driving cars being tested around the world. And I think it's important to sort of think about this really as uh, a continuum, right? There's a pathway to autonomous vehicles. There's a progression of capabilities, if you were. The Society of Automotive Engineers has dimensioned five different levels on, on the path to autonomous, uh, starting with driver only, which is pretty old school. We don't have many of those cars left on the road today. Uh, and then sort of as they move along the progression, incorporating active safety features. And these are things like, you know, well, starting with basic cruise control, blind spot assistant, adaptive cruise control, emergency braking, et cetera. Um, many of these features have become standard in a lot of our cars. So that, that's, an, now, import, that's next- an important, sorry to interrupt, that's an important nuance because um, I think the way you lay it out as a spectrum is important. Self-driving vehicles takes many forms. There is the most extreme where you actually have the full-fledged self-driving vehicle. But um, much of the technology that is allowing for that element has been around for some time, from cruise control to automatic braking, four-wheel drive, and so forth. Is that, is that a fair characterization? That's absolutely right. We're seeing incremental improvements in those technologies. But yes, those are things that have been around for quite some time. And in terms of the safety and reliability of those features, I think they're quite well established and consumers in general are pretty comfortable. In fact, look for those features in terms of new cars. So let's get at that. For a standard car, if I go and purchase a car today, where are we in that continuum? Are, are we kind of in the middle? Are we further to, to the far end where you have full-fledged self-driving vehicles? Really where we are today is sort of in this continuum, they'd be sort of level two, level three, where you have, you know, partial automation or higher levels of automation. And there you may be seeing ads for cars that will break when the deer jumps out in the headlights at night, right? Or, or the car might swerve to avoid something that is all of a sudden in its path that the driver may not yet have actually seen. Those features are new and they're starting to be available at the high end. They're certainly not widespread, but that's something that will continue to sort of push down market in terms of prices, right, in terms of categories of cars. Where a lot of the testing and where the um, real breakthroughs have been occurring are in levels four and five. And level four is this idea of full automation within defined use cases. So we're, we're reading a lot about self-driving cars where the driver is in the driver's seat and ready to take control in certain situations. Tesla, for example, their autopilot, I don't know if you've had the experience of test driving one, but really the, the driver can be in the driver's seat with hands off in many situations. Uh, but then when you have the sort of what roboticists refer to as corner situations, they need to be ready to assume control. So, so what, that's what's, level four. What's some of the technology that allows for all of this to occur? 
Well, there's a lot of technology, obviously, as you can imagine. And, and this is where we've had a lot of the breakthroughs. As cameras and sensors have become better and cheaper, that's part of the reason that we're sort of having this step forward, if you will, in terms of uh, ability for cars to, to drive themselves, if you will, or be increasingly autonomous. A really big recent breakthrough is a type of sensor called LIDAR, uh, and that stands for light detecting and ranging. And the, the breakthrough there really is it's using pulsed laser light to measure distance and create 3D objects. Um, so as a result of that, it can detect motion. And that, as you can imagine, of course, as a car is moving through an environment which is also dynamic, that ability to detect motion and gauge distance is something that's incredibly important. You may have seen LIDAR sensors if you see any test cars driving around your neck of the woods, they've got this sort of gizmo on the top. That is a LIDAR sensor. Sitting right on the, on the roof, uh, spinning around, tr- sending That's out that exactly light. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those are incredibly expensive right now. One of those units costs uh, in excess of $75,000. So you can imagine that cost is an impediment to broader adoption. But again, as volumes grow, those prices will come down and that will become something that is more affordable. Yeah. We can't uh, leave self-driving without talking about some of these safety issues, right? That gets most of the press around um, self-driving vehicles. So I guess, where do we stand today? I know several companies had pulled back on their testing out on actual roads where there's other drivers and pedestrians. So how do you think about these safety issues? Well, safety issues are a major, major concern. I think, you know, one of the strongest arguments for self-driving cars is that, um, you know, we have 40,000 traffic fatalities in this country every year, millions more injuries, um, and, you know, tens of billions, if not $100 billion in terms of damages. And 90% of all traffic accidents are caused by human error. So the promise of this technology is that uh, it could dramatically improve safety. But of course, as you mentioned, there have been some very high profile issues in terms of some of the testing. There was a fatal accident by an Uber self-driving test car in Arizona a couple of months ago. And as a result, states, really all of the states that had been allowing testing on public roads have since suspended their program. So how do we improve the safety profile? Well, obviously, we need further testing and further development. And how that happens is really yet to be determined, right? If testing is limited on public roads, how, how we get to that next leg is, is definitely a question mark. I think an important point is that available technology doesn't mean adopted technology. So public perception and acceptance is absolutely critical. Regulation is absolutely critical as well. And we don't really have regulation around the use of these technologies. Questions about liability in the event of a failure also is something that will need to be resolved before we get to broader adoption for sure. But ultimately, you know, these things will be worked out. We don't know how. They'll have to be worked out before we can move forward. Um, But we have confidence that they will be. Safety experts continue to argue that there is a safety imperative to make make progress on self-driving cars. So I think it's fair to say that the, the road to 
you know, ultimate usage and safe usage is going to be a bumpy one. And um, for some time, that testing is going to be really, really important, but it's not going to be perfect. Similar, I guess, to, to electric vehicles, right? We'll have to, to figure out the ways to get over some of these challenges to get the benefit like self-driving, we'll get the benefit of electric vehicles. Let's move on to this third section, which is mobile on demand. Um, how does that fit into this whole picture, either around electric vehicles, self-driving, or just any, any of the transformations that are occurring in the industry? Well, absolutely. We think there's likely to be an overlap and sort of a mutually reinforcing adoption in terms of self-driving and mobility on demand. Most experts think that as mobility on demand increases, so will the demand for self-driving technologies. If you think about personally owned cars, on average, they're only in use 5% of the time. So that's 95% of the time that they're idle. Clearly, as ride sharing increases, that utilization rate goes up, and therefore the economic feasibility of making some of the necessary investments in technology increases. It's no accident that Uber and some of its competitors are really at the forefront of testing autonomous technology. Give us a sense for um, all the different ways in which mobile on demand is being used. I mean, again, I'm in New York City, so I see people uh, going to work or going home or or going out to a restaurant during the evening. But there's many, many other ways, probably more uh, socially beneficial ways for individuals that they're utilizing Ubers and the like. Well, Uber's being used around the world. It's present in 300-plus cities, 80-plus countries. 10 million people take an Uber every day, which is really, really remarkable. It was not that long ago that this idea of jumping in a complete stranger's car and going off to your destination would have been absolutely anathema. We think nothing of it today, right? In fact, one of our colleagues was telling the story, I don't know if you've heard this one as well, but about a year ago, he came across a great deal on a fire engine red Jeep Jeep Cherokee, bought it for his son who was about to turn 16. A year on, he's about to turn 17. He hasn't taken his driver's test yet. And when asked why not, he says, why would I want to drive that thing? Driving is dangerous and so inconvenient. I'll just take an Uber. Mm -hmm. It's definitely generational. Well, certainly jumping in an Uber when you're going out for dinner in the evening, not having to worry about driving on the way home or parking when you get there is is a real benefit. I think a much bigger benefit from a social point of view is the ability for folks that maybe aren't so comfortable driving anymore, older folks taking Uber to go to the doctor, increasing really their personal independence, not having to rely on kids or friends. I think that's a real benefit benefit for disabled people as well, most certainly. And also, the attitude varies very much from country to country. The studies show that in countries where people are much more inclined to use public transit, there's been substantially higher uptake in in this idea of transport as a service, mobility on demand or rideshare. Absolutely. Yeah. And all this is enabled by technology, apps on our phone and so forth. I want to come back to this issue um, and the Uh, relationship between mobile on demand and and self-driving. You touched on that relationship. The Ubers and the like today have drivers in them. But as I understand it, the drivers are a meaningful portion of the cost for ride sharing and, and mobile on demand. So how do those two things interact with one another? What's the possibility for where this could go? 
Well, and again, this kind of points to why Uber is investing so much in this particular technology. Currently, ride-hailing services in the developed world cost an average of about $250 per mile versus around $1.20 per mile for the average private car. But as you, I think, alluded to, the driver accounts to almost 60% of the ride-sharing costs. So Ubers and the like have a real incentive to try and replace those drivers, right, with no driver, right, with self-driving cars, to really bring that cost down. And it's estimated that eliminating the driver plus implementing electric technology could bring the cost per mile down to as low as 70 cents, which is really quite remarkable. I think that's the fascinating part, is, and, and you did this very well, interweaving all of these together. Ultimately, the end game for mobile on demand is highly contingent upon success of self-driving and electric vehicles and a whole host of other technologies. And that's why this is so important for all of us, all of our listeners over the next several years. So we'll be watching it very, very closely. Moira, we ran out of time, but I want to thank you very much for uh, giving us a lot of your insights today on the transformation of the auto industry. And for everybody out there listening, thanks very much. And you can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bernstein. Making money meaningful for individuals, families, and foundations for over 50 years. Visit us at Bernstein.com.